Good morning, friends. So good to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 42. This portion that we began two weeks ago. Isaiah 42, our passage today is verses 5 through 9. Uh, let me go back and pick up at verse 1 so you can see the context of our passage today. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I'm the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Thus says the Lord. May uh, he bless his word. And let's ask for help as we look into these verses today. Uh, Father, we do ask again for uh, the help your Holy Spirit gives us. Uh, your word says that he can open our eyes and open our ears to both see and hear spiritual truth. Uh, we know that without your spirit at work in us, we will see and hear nothing. Nothing of consequence, nothing of eternal value. But we come hungry and thirsty to your table today and ask, O oh God, that you would feed us from the bread of your word, from the bread of Jesus, your son. Uh, God, quicken us to hear and see. Strengthen me, Lord, to preach. Uh, we commit our time now to you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We return uh, today to our study on Isaiah's Servant of the Lord. Uh, more than one person goes by that title here in the book of Isaiah. Sometimes the nation Israel is called my servant. Uh, even uh, the Persian king Cyrus the Great is referred to by the Lord as my servant. But this portion that we've been studying for, this is now the third week, uh, the servant of the Lord is obviously Jesus Christ. These verses are Isaiah's prophetic portrayal of Christ's earthly ministry. Two weeks ago, we uh, looked at uh, verse 1 and talked about... Stephen, my clicker's not working. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about these seven qualities as we looked at the mission 
of the Lord's servant. And then last week, if you were here with us, bump to the next one, guys. Sorry. We talked about his manner, how he would carry uh, this out. Well, this morning, the question of verses 5 through 9 seems to be, why did the Lord appoint his uh, appoint and send his servant? Why did God select and send the servant of the Lord? Why did the Lord send Jesus to the, the servant to be born of a woman and placed in a feed trough in the confines of a filthy stable? We could answer this in several ways, but the reason Isaiah gives in verses 5 through 9 is so that Israel would see and savor the supremacy of God. Thank you, Nate. Uh, as I borrow that phrase from John Piper, that seems to be why God the Father sent Jesus, his servant, so that the nation of Israel, as well as you and me, who Paul refers to as the Israel of God, God sent Jesus, his servant, so that we would see and savor the supremacy of God. And God does not take this uh, lightly as something easily dismissed. God is serious about his supremacy and wants you not only to see it, to grasp it with your mind's eye, but he wants you to savor it, relish it, delight in his supremacy. In verses 5 through 9, we see the supremacy of God in three areas. First, we see his supremacy over creation. Uh, the Lord is the transcendent one, the creator of the heavens and, and earth, and the giver and sustainer of all life. Um, there are three things I want to point, about his, point out about his supremacy uh, over creation. These are all found in verse 5. To begin with, it says that he is the transcendent one. We don't use that word a lot in uh, everyday speech. Transcendent means to be beyond the limits of ordinary experience, to, uh, that he is supreme, that he is incomparable or incomparable, however you'd like to say it. Look at verse 5 with me. Thus says God. You know that there are several Hebrew names for God in the Old Testament. And you've heard me mention the name Yahweh and Adonai and El Shaddai. Now, this is the Hebrew name El. And while it is the shortest name for God in the Bible, it is also one of the most expansive names uh, for God in the Old Testament. This stresses the absolute might of God, that he is supremely lofty uh, beyond comparison. He is outside the realm of the ordinary and common. But notice the name that follows this. Thus says God, the Lord, and notice the Lord and how it's spelled, and you recognize that that word represents his covenant name, Yahweh, this is the name God uh, makes known to those who enter uh, an agreement with him or a pact with him 
To these, the Lord makes himself known as, as Yahweh. Isaiah is telling us that the God who draws near to us and enters a covenant with us, that enters a relationship with us, is none other than the transcendent God of the universe. The God who draws near is the Supreme One, the Almighty One, the Incomprehensible One. We see this to begin with, but then we go on and we note not only is He transcendent, He is the Creator. As we might expect, this transcendent Almighty One is the Creator of all things. Verse 5 goes on to say this, Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. There is some very picturesque language in this verse. And uh, Isaiah compares God's creation of the sky with the way that you and I would set up a tent. Now you tenderfoots have never had this experience and so you know you can't relate to this part of the Bible which is a shame, isn't it? Um, uh, but many of you have uh, done tent camping. Uh, the, the phrase we're referring to is and stretched them out. Uh, uh, Israel's patriarch was a tent dweller. And of course he traveled great distances and uh, was nomadic and set up a tent wherever he went. Israel as a nation lived in tents for 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness. And again, you can picture this in your mind if you've done any tent camping. And, and Isaiah tells us that the Lord created the heavens with such power that it was like you or I unfurling our tents at the campsite before we insert the tent poles. At least that's what I do. I just sh shake the roll out and there it unrolls and there's my tent before I put the poles in. I Isaiah describes this uh, in a couple chapters before this as well. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and that has implications for you flat earth people out there. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. If you could just possibly in your mind's eye imagine the infinity of space right now. And how did God create that? Well, to him, it was like the way you and I just, just roll out a tent. It was nothing. Nothing. He goes on with this graphic speech in the next phrase in verse 5, who's, who spread out the earth. That's a term for metalworking. And Isaiah is comparing the Lord's creation of planet earth the way a metal worker would flatten out a piece of metal with a hammer. They would tap out the rough spots, you know, to make the metal smooth. It was, it was molten to begin with, and they had to pour it out on uh, something hard, and then they would hammer out the bumps in it, smooth out the surfaces. That's similar to the way God created the earth, how he molded it. And then he says, and what comes from it seems to be a, 
a reference to the what the earth produces. It's probably a reference, many believe, to, to, to grass, green grass. In the wintertime in the land of Palestine, there would be wide stretches of, of land where the usually brown earth was uh, covered with green grass. We don't appreciate this most of the time when we are mowing our grass in the summertime. But the transcendent power of God descends to the extent of the grass that grows in your lawn. Uh, he says this in uh, Psalm 147. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. That transcendent God is the one responsible for you having to mow your lawn every 10 days. He makes your grass grow, or in some cases, causes it not to grow. He is, uh, secondly, he's the creator. But then we see a third thing in this first part as well. He is also the sustainer of all things. Verse 5 concludes with this thought, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The Lord not only gave man his first breath at the creation uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, the Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Our transcendent God gives, uh, also gives mankind every breath thereafter. And I do mean every breath thereafter. There, see? That was the Lord's doing what you just did. Listen to the Apostle Paul affirm this on Mars Hill, talking to uh, the, uh, the Athenians. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God the Almighty creator of heaven and earth has given mankind every breath it has ever taken. And yet humanity is, is oblivious to this. It's something our brain does automatically. At least I was taught that in, in school. We don't think about breathing, inhaling, and exhaling. It's, it's a function of our brain. But this says, his word says, is that every breath we take comes from God's sustaining and ongoing care for his creation. And here, you're doing it all the time without even thinking about it. Of course, we could take it to extremes. If you want to thank the Lord for every breath you take, you would be talking to God a long time all day. There was a, a, so one Bible scholar comments about this, the life of the natural world, just as much as the life of humans, is the constantly ministered life of God. Life is not inherent in the soil, nor is human life the product of a self-existing evolutionary surge, but the direct gift of the creator. 
It is not endless, but is enjoyed by the faithfulness of his continuing giving. Uh, my dog, Jojo, is completely dependent upon me and Christy for everything she needs. Uh, she is dependent on me and Christy to be fed. As many times as I've encouraged her to get her own dinner, <laughs> something about not having opposable thumbs, you know, and she can't do it, and so she'll just sit and stare at me until I get up and do it. Um, our dog is completely dependent on us for her medications. She can't self-administer anything. Nothing. She, um, she is completely dependent on us for her care. Uh, she cannot, um, you know, take herself to the vet, hop in the car and find out what's wrong with her. She can't even use the restroom without by herself. She's dependent on, on us to walk her, to take her on walks. And you might think, Pastor Rob, now you're being facetious. And, but am I? Isn't that what God does for, any, for, for every one of us? who, look at what it says, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so, through this one verse, verse 5, we see the supremacy of God in creation, God the transcendent one, the supreme one, the, the almighty one, Created and sustains all things. And we see his supremacy through this first, but it, that's not all. There's a second area where he's, we see him as supreme. We see his supremacy in his servant. We see the supremacy of God on display through the servant of the Lord, he mentions three things about the servant. He says he is called by the Lord. The servant is called by, by the Lord himself. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. It's Yahweh himself, the covenant God of Israel, who has summoned the servant Two weeks ago, when we were looking at those seven qualities of the servant, we noted that, that the Father had summoned Jesus the Son to this role in eternity past. I always point here, and I'm pointing that because on a timeline, that's the past. And I'm actually pointing way beyond the wall there to time before the world even existed. Can you imagine such a thing? Time before the world even existed, it was then that God the Father summoned the Son to this role as our Redeemer. Uh, 
Peter describes it, or attempts to at least. You were, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like them, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or made evident in the last times for the sake of you. And in this high priestly prayer, Jesus said this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Yahweh himself had summoned Jesus the Son, called his Son to this role as, as the servant of the Lord before time began. And it says further, I've called you in righteousness. What is righteousness? It is a, uh, the quality of rightness, of being inherently correct or perfect. It's somewhat associated with God's holiness. Everything he does is just and perfect and absolutely flawless. And Jesus, the servant of the Lord, was called in God's absolute righteousness. It was in keeping with, with God the Father's perfect character. And so the, the servant's calling displays the supremacy of God. Uh, but then it goes on to say that he is protected by the Lord. And this also displays the supremacy of God. He, uh, God's supremacy is seen in, in the way he protects his servant. As verse 6 goes on to say, I'm the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And this phrase, I will take you by the hand, I just call you to remember uh, mom and dad and, and grandparents in the room of that, uh, of that tender time, those tender years when your son or your daughter or your grandson or your daughter had to take your hand to be led by your hand. That's the image that Isaiah is painting of the father and the son. That the father would would accompany Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. That Jesus, the servant of the Lord, would be upheld and strengthened in his role by the Father. Uh, and then the next phrase uh, accompanies this. The Father says further, I will keep you, meaning I will keep you safe, I will protect you. You put these together and they imply that the role of the servant involved great difficulty and great hardship that he needed his hand held and that he needed to be kept by the Father. And the Father gives the servant of the Lord this assurance by describing how he would be protected by him. Secondly, he's protected by the Lord, by God the Father. And then thirdly, it says he is sent by the Lord. The servant is sent as a covenant and light to the nations. Verse 6 concludes with this. 
I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. He was given to begin with as a covenant. Can you see that there at the very bottom? Do I need to duck down and scrunch behind the pulpit so you can read that? Again, that's a, that's a pact or an agreement between two parties. And scripture often refers to the covenant that God makes uh, with his people. And this reference to a covenant here in verse 6 is a reference to the new covenant that we read about in Hebrews chapter 8 today. The old covenant, also sometimes known as the Mosaic covenant, because it was given by Moses, that was, it said, uh, not without fault. That covenant was merely external. It was commandments that God gave to Israel. And, and the key phrase with the Mosaic covenant is, you shall, you shall not, you shall, you shall not. But you know from Old Testament history, there was no power in man to successfully carry it out fully and completely. But by contrast, this covenant, the new covenant, is it's internal. God's law is written on our minds and our hearts. And, and the key words with this new covenant is not you shall, but I will. That's the Lord saying, I will do this in you. I will cause you to follow my commandments. Listen to Ezekiel describe it. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. These covenants made between parties were confirmed by a sacrifice that involved blood. We see that in God's covenant with Abraham and others. Uh, the old covenant was confirmed or ratified through the blood of animals, but the new covenant was confirmed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And think of these words that we hear and say every time we take the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood he would shed on the cross would confirm or ratify the new pact between God and his people. And, and, and look at the wording. Uh, look at the wording specifically, how he says it here. I will give you as a covenant. Not just I will make you the mediator of a better covenant, which Hebrews says, but this is I will make you as a covenant uh, in the servant. It's in Christ that these blessings are enjoyed. Listen to one person describe it. To say that the servant is a covenant is to say that all the blessings of the covenant are embodied in, have their root and origin in, and are dispensed by him. If you are in Christ, you partake of this new covenant and have the, Spirit, have the Spirit of God dwelling in within you and have the law of God written on your heart and have a desire and a new affection to carry out God's commands by the power of His Spirit. 
He gives the servant as a covenant, it says, to the people and the nations. And then he says, he goes on to describe one blessing in particular from this new covenant. Uh, at the end of verse 6, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the peoples, uh, for the peoples, light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. One blessing we receive in the new covenant through Christ is spiritual light. We're given eyes to see and comprehend spiritual truth. If you're not in Christ, I could stand up here all day long and you still would not be able to understand spiritual truth. Because this has to be um, shown you by the Spirit of God. In fact, His Word tells us this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. The natural person, that's those who do not have Christ dwelling in them, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. For they are folly to him. They're foolishness. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're grasped by and through the Holy Spirit. God must send his Spirit to open our blind eyes and open our deaf ears to hear and understand the good news about Jesus and to respond in faith. Otherwise, we are blind and deaf to truth. When we hear and understand the good news about Christ, when our eyes are opened, when our ears are open to hear, and we respond in faith in Christ's atoning death, we're set free from slavery to sin. Verse 7 tells us this. It goes on to say, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I'm going to say something really offensive. That's the condition of every person in the world outside of Christ. You're a slave. You're a slave to sin. And if that offends you, then please understand it's not me saying it. It's God telling you that outside of Jesus Christ, you are in prison to sin. This is my condition and your condition before coming to trust in Christ. We were slaves, enslaved to sin. Slave, sin was our slave master. We did his bidding. Listen, listen to the word of God affirm this, uh, that this was our condition. Uh, first in, in John 8.34, Jesus speaking says, Truly, truly, or I tell you most solemnly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In other words, those who sin are enslaved to it. 
And then the book of Titus affirms it too. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hated, hating one another. And the, and the Bible continues to describe this condition before Christ. And probably the best description is found in Romans chapter 6. Listen to Paul describe it now. It's too big for slides. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So everybody's a slave. It's what are you a slave to? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can find freedom from that, and which is real freedom, even though Paul calls it slavery. You can be a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. But there's no, there's no, I'm, I'm nobody's slave. As we often hear people protest. We receive this in the new covenant, this blessing through the servant of the Lord. We're given eyes to see and comprehend truth that sets us free from our bondage in the prison house of sin. And this is how God puts his supremacy on display in the servant. He puts his greatness and his incomparable nature on display through the servant, he's called by the Lord, summoned, he's protected by the Lord, kept safe on his earthly mission, and sent by him as a covenant and light to the nations. Amen. Yes, yes, indeed. So uh, we've seen his supremacy in creation, his supremacy in the servant. And we see the supremacy of God in one more area, and that is in his supremacy over idols, uh, over figurines that have been carved by man or other things that represent false gods. And we see his supremacy in two ways here. We see his supremacy over idols first in his jealousy. It's, it's strange to think that God is jealous in the book of Exodus, he calls himself jealous. He doesn't just admit it, confess that I have something to share with you and not get jealous sometimes. No, God boldly declares it in the second commandment. You shall, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image, for I am a jealous God, he says. Look at verse 8 with me. I am the Lord that is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This reminds us of, of the overall setting 
of our passage, this servant song, it comes in the middle of, a, of God's accusation of, of idolatry, uh, of accusing Israel of, of worshiping false gods. And, and that's why he introduced the servant of the Lord in verse 1, Behold my servant, the, the great contrast to all your false gods. And here in verse 8, we see God is as jealous, as, as passionate for his glory, as protective of his glory. It is, his glory is his essential reality, the sum of all his attributes. It's, it's the awesome weight of who he is, his heaviness, even his, his gravitas, we would say. He will not share his awesome weight of his being with a little hand-carved figurine representing a false god. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine being compared with a, with a figurine? And the reason he will not share that is because that figurine and the God it represents is nothing. He is the ultimate and only reality. And that's why he forbids, yes, forbids idolatry. Because he knows he's the only ultimate reality. He knows that idols are nothing. He knows that idols can never satisfy us. He knows that he is the only thing that can ever truly satisfy. And so while he forbids idolatry, it's to direct us toward himself, the most satisfying thing in the universe. We see his supremacy the way God fights passionately for his glory, uh, through his jealousy, through his fierce passion for his great name. And then we see it in another way as well. Not only we see his supremacy through his jealousy, we see his supremacy through his credibility. And by that I mean the things God says will happen actually happen. Verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Look at this, the Lord says, the former things that I've announced through, through prophets, they've taken place. This is strange to us because we announce things all the time, don't we? Somebody commented last week, how does the weatherman get away with it? I mean, he is paid for false prophecy, is he not? In fact, well, he, you know, he, he is, these former things probably refer to um, the prophecies about Cyrus the Great, who would have already come to power when these events begin to take place. It might refer... Uh, to Israel's captivity in Babylon. But regardless, what the Lord announces happens. 
And he challenges Israel's false gods on this very thing. Look at back in uh, chapter 41 and, and verse 21. And he, he says to them, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell me something. Anything that you've said would take place, has it taken place? And he goes on to talk about things to come at the very end of verse 9. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In other words, since I've established my credibility in the fulfillment of prophecy, you can trust that the new things I'm announcing to you will also take place. Especially this new announcement about my servant. Since Cyrus came to power as I said he would, and since you've been rescued from captivity in Babylon like I said you would, then certainly you can believe that my servant will come and rescue you from the prison of spiritual darkness and captivity to sin. And you and I know that this in fact did happen, don't we? That at the first advent of Christ, the servant of the Lord came and died on the cross to rescue us from the prison house of sin. We see the supremacy of God through his credibility. The things he said would happen did happen. So why did the Lord appoint and send his servant? Why did God select and send his son? Why did the Lord send Jesus the servant to be born of a woman placed in a feed trough uh, in the confines of a filthy stable? The reason Isaiah gives us in these verses, verses 5 through 9, is that so Israel would see and savor the supremacy of God. God the Father sent Jesus his servant so that the nation of Israel as well as spiritual Israel that you and me would see and savor his supremacy. And in our passage we see his supremacy in three areas. Uh, first in his supremacy over creation. In his uh, supremacy in the servant. And in his supremacy over idols. Pray with me as we uh, prepare to take the Lord's Supper. We confess again, Christ Jesus, we agree with the words of the great reformer. Our heart remains a perpetual factory of idols. And we confess that this is often true, especially around this time of year. When we don't observe Advent, we simply celebrate Christmas and have our minds set on the things of the world around us. 
we would all sing that great song, these words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We pray, Lord Christ, that you would draw us near to yourself by your good spirit who lives in us. Reveal our hidden idolatries and Savior, point us to uh, the precious reality that you are and the great, great supremacy of your Father in sending you to pay for our sin. We confess we don't grasp this as clearly as we should. Please open our minds to wonder and awe at the great thing your birth is. Prepare us further as we uh, observe uh, the Lord's Supper now, Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. If I could get the men who are going to help me.